0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 4. As we continue in our series, Stepping into God's Promises. Literally, for the nation of Israel, stepping into God's promises. Uh, This is a, a time in the life of Israel where they have been wandering for 40 years with a sense of unfulfilled longing because they know God is promising them certain things, uh, namely land and a people to be a part of and God's blessing, but part of that promise remains uh, unfulfilled and it's left them with this deep longing. Joshua is the answer to that as God fulfills all the promises that he makes to his people. Not one of his promises falls to the ground unfulfilled. Joshua would later say to end his book. Um, And the fulcrum of the book, at least right now, is focusing on an area of land. And we're right in the middle of that journey where God is bringing them to the land that he has promised them. Uh, And in the last couple weeks, we've just been looking at this giant obstacle in the middle uh, of the process, the Jordan River, this giant rushing river that's keeping them from all that God has for them. And what it looks like to wait on the Lord. That's what we talked about last week. What it looks like to wait on the Lord when nothing seems to happen. Uh, And that God actually meets us in the process of waiting. God isn't only about the outcome, He's also about the process. And so sometimes we're just camped out right in the middle of our problems, looking at the rushing river of our problems. But God wants to do a powerful work in the midst of that. And so that was last week. Joshua 4 doesn't really leave that whole narrative. Uh, It actually goes back, and it might be confusing at first uh, because you'll see instances where the author is writing and as they were passing through the river, and you might be like, I thought they already did that in Joshua 3. Well, they did, but this is a a typical Hebrew narrative way of of writing in which in uh, another chapter, they'll go back to what happened and they'll revisit it and they'll focus in On something specific. Um, And Joshua 4 is revisiting the crossing of the Jordan River. And it's honing in on a very specific instance where God wants his people to remember what he just did. Uh, And so we're going to read that. Um, That's where we're at right now. We'll read that and study the implications of that for our own life. Um, But let's just start today by reading verses 1 through 7. Joshua chapter 4. It says, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them, Oh, the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for moments where you cause your people to slow down, stop, and remember. It's sometimes hard to do that with the, the busyness in our life and the full plates that we carry and the anxieties and the worries and yet you're so kind to cause us in, in strategic moments in our life to just slow down and to look. I pray that you would do that with us as a church, individually as well. Whatever it is that you want us to slow down and to look at, whatever it is that you want us to want to capture our attention with, I pray that your your spirit would do that in each of us today as we listen to your word. And certainly there are things that you want to show us today, things that you want to unpack and uncover we I pray that you would guard our minds and our thoughts in order to receive what the Spirit is saying. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In the fifth century BC, there was a Greek poet and lyricist by the name of Simonides. Awesome name. Simonides was a professional orator. He was often commissioned to give poems, awesome career, Uh, in various places back when that thing was was pretty huge. And he was commissioned one day to give a poem uh, for a a renowned boxer um, by the name of Scopus. this boxer was having a feast in this giant banquet hall. All of his friends, all of these aristocrats, powerful people from around town, filled this banquet hall and um, he at a certain point in the in the night, called up uh, Simonides, who gave off this poem. but in his poem, Simonides ended up uh, speaking more about uh, uh, Castor and Pollux, who happened to be uh, uh, this boxer 's arch enemies and so after he Use this moment that was there to honor uh, this boxer uh, to uh, to basically uh, lift up his arch enemies. The, the boxer came up to him and gave him his commi- half of his commission. And said, "You know what? I'll give you half of what I owe you. Uh, Castor and Pollux can pay the other half." And then he split. So Simonides leaves the banqueting hall. He goes outside, according to history, and uh, and is pulled outside by two people, uh, presumably Castor and Pollux. As they're exchanging words and they're speaking, the entire banqueting hall collapses on everybody inside, killing everybody. Not only did it kill everybody inside the banqueting hall, but it so horribly disfigured their faces and bodies that as loved ones begin to swarm in on the scene, they couldn't recognize who belonged to who. History tells us that Simonides closes his eyes and begin to think for a moment remembering and recalling the place settings where everybody sat. And as he remembered where they sat, he actually began to remember their faces and who was sitting there. And he opened his eyes, and one by one he began leading every single person, every loved one, into the banqueting hall to where their loved one's remains were. Out of this, he began to realize, and people after him, the human brain is not meant to memorize large bodies of information, like phone numbers and names uh, and books and literature. We, our brains were wired to remember visuals and places. Out of this came uh, what is called today the art of memory, uh, where we get all of these mnemonic devices where we attach Two arbitrary numbers and to information, phone numbers, uh, people, places, things, uh, actual visuals and specific places and this is something that over the years, has helped people to memorize large speeches uh, it 's helped rabbis to remember large books of the Bible and so on and so forth he 's uh, credited with uh, birthing this movement, associating Unique visuals and specific places with things to remember. But a thousand years before Simonides did that, God was doing it first. And we see that in verse 1 through 7 with God's command for his people to remember something. And he tells them uh, in verses, uh, verses 1 through 7, he commands 12 men from each tribe to carry a stone and to lay it down. And he'll go on to tell them that you are eventually going to look at these stones... And in this place, when your kids come across this, you can just imagine as a new generation is born and as they grow up and as they ask their elders, uh, as they're going through, uh, you know, Gilgal National Park and they see a giant uh, uh, pillar of rocks, they might ask their dad or their grandpa, you know, what is that? And they'll be able to tell them, "This, this is what God has done. God uses these places and these visuals and these seasons in life as things to look back on to remind his people of what he has done in the midst of those seasons. Notice that he tells them to take these rocks out of the midst of the Jordan. He doesn't wait until another day. It's like he's specifically giving them a token of that very... The Jordan River was that obstacle that was keeping God's people from God's promises. I think it's so telling that God actually has them slow down in the midst of the obstacle and says, I want you to gather rocks, stones from the Jordan itself because I want you to remember this day. The stones came from the very place that seems so daunting. It's often in our weaknesses and in our limitations that God's power is put on display and he doesn't want us to forget that. Paul would later say about that thorn in his flesh, that thing that was keeping him from being the person that he wanted to be, he would later, in this revelation from God, go on to say, you know what, Christ's power is actually made perfect in our weakness. God uses our weaknesses, he uses our limitations, he uses the rivers in our life. Those very things that we want so badly to escape from, he actually uses And when we come out of them, he wants us to remember, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Shows the beauty of what it means to be weak and desperate on the Lord in those moments. This is a picture of remembering God's faithfulness. Specifically through impossible circumstances. Have you ever had moments in your life where God gave you a breakthrough? Where you're in the middle of an impossible situation. It was your Jordan River, so to speak. And God parted the river. He opened up a way for you. He got rid of an obstacle. He showed himself mighty on your behalf. And how easy it is for us to forget a week later. And so God tells us on and on, over and over, I want you to remember what I did in that moment. It's not so much uh, to pat God on the back at all, nor is it, just to be nostalgic, nor is it to give God some type of holy gesture. It's more maybe for our sake than anybody else, for remembering God's faithfulness in difficulty is actually an act of spiritual formation. Every time we remember God's goodness in the middle of adversity, it forms us, and it shapes us to trust him on a deeper level the next time to step into deeper waters the next time. That's why you get reminders of this all throughout the Old Testament, of Deuteronomy chapter five, verse 15. God says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. He's telling the nation of Israel this, right? And that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. There he is, telling them to remember what he has done in a specific place. And then he gives them an actual practice to associate with it. You know what comes next? This is why I want you to honor the Sabbath. Think of that visual that would have just been crushed into their memory. You used to be enslaved to Pharaoh, and he worked you to the bone for seven days a week. But I am a God of joy and life. I want to show you the beauty of work, but on the seventh day, I want you to play. And every time you do that, I want you to remember, you used to be slaves, but now you're free. God keeps doing stuff like that. He does powerful things in our lives and then he gives us ways to remember that. Isaiah 46, verse eight through nine, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. Remember how it used to be. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Compare what it used to be with what I'm doing with you now. Uh, One author, James Wilhoyt, writes, in Hebrew thought that the chief spiritual malady was forgetfulness. It's one of the most dangerous things in the life of Israel, as you'll see in a few moments. Therefore, one of the chief ends of education was the remembrance of the mighty acts that God had performed on behalf of his people. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a huge example of this. This is one of the most basic texts in the life of an uh, an Israelite. Deuteronomy chapter 6, specifically verse 4, is maybe what what you might call the State of the Union Address. Uh, For Israel this is that that mantra that they would repeat to themselves that they would unify around that would form and shape them and it would go something like this listen O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one the Lord alone is that statement that shaped and gave them their identity and after that you know this one you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength you must commit yourself wholeheartedly to these commands I am giving you today. Uh, what Jesus would later describe as the greatest commandment in the entire Bible. So their identity based on God's identity and the greatest commandment coming out of that. Just extremely important, right? But look at what he does after that. He says, repeat them, repeat this again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Constantly keep before you the acts and the character of God. Don't forget. Remembering God and remembering what God has done is not just an exercise in, uh, uh, in remembering the past. It's actually an exercise in recalibration. For every time we remember what God has done faithfully in our past and in our present, it recalibrates us to Him For the future. And so this is God's command to Israel. It's the same command that he gives to us. In verses 8 through 10, we actually see the act of remembering. That was a command to remember. This is the act of remembering. Uh, In verse 8, it says, The people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over then in haste couple things you see 12 men carrying stones and then you see in verse 9 Joshua it seems as though the stones that the uh, the 12 men carried Joshua then assembles into a pile and then they will take that pile and later do it again but it is this combined participation of many different people that I want us to really hone on it's not just Joshua putting up a, a pillar of rocks It's not even just 12 men and Joshua, but 12 men representing every tribe. This is an act being done by the entire congregation. It's corporate. God calls us to do things together. There's things that we're called to do individually, but there are a lot of things that God calls us to do together. There seems to be an importance attached to the doing of things together. It's not just something that we fill the week with, but it actually has a purpose in these organized rhythmic practices and routines. These organized things that we continue to do over and over and over. Uh, there's an unfortunate sentiment in today's world, uh, in the corporate world, but also in the uh, spiritual world, that says something like this. Organi- uh, organized religion is bad, And personal spirituality is good. Ever heard that one before? Anything organized or institutional, bad. Personal spirituality and autonomy, good. I would argue that from the scriptures, both of them are actually good and needed. And both of them can actually be abused as we let them be. Personal spirituality is good. God works in every single individual person's life but there comes a point in time where we need from one another the life that God gives. I need you in my life. And you need each other. And the more people there are that need one another, the more we need a shared uh, belief system and value system and practices that we all have in common. That's its mo- at its most basic nature what an institution provides. Mark Sayers, a great author on the intersection of culture and the church writes this. He says, institutions at their most basic level are just beliefs and ethics enfleshed. It's the things that we believe and we share in our minds actually being put into practice. He goes on to say, "They bring ideas down from the ether and ensure that the, uh, from the ether and ensure that they are operating within the actual life of a community." So this is how the things that we value, the things that we believe, from the spiritual gifts to the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the goodness of God, the values that we have like shared meals and testimonies and uh, hospitality and so on. These are how the shared practices like uh, giving and receiving and ministering, all of those things are, well, shared. An illustration of this uh, is back in 2004 when a large Asian tsunami hit uh, Aceh in Indonesia. Over 167,000 people died. But on the island of Saimeliu, just off of Aceh, Only seven people perished. Just right by. Only seven versus 167,000. Why? It's because of a little institution in that little island by the name of Shmong. Everybody say, Shmong. Shmong. Shmong is a storytelling tradition and a storytelling institution that moved from generation to generation. It kind of goes like this. Every song story that you would tell to your kids would end with a warning. And the warning goes like this. If a strong tremor occurs, and if the sea withdraws soon after, run to the hills, for the sea will soon rush ashore. The end. Good night. <laughs> it's actually kind of creepy when you think about it. It's like when I first learned that uh, that, that nursery song, London Bridge, was about the bubonic plague. And I was like, oh, that's so horrible i'm not singing that to my kid you know but whenever the tremor occurred the people in that village instinctively knew what they were supposed to do and it ended up saving thousands of lives can you imagine what would have happened if they did not treat that as a habitual practice with seriousness if they just turned into themselves and say it's just about you know this society is just about me Just gonna do things my way. And they were not intimately connected and accountable to other people through a series of shared practices and values. Institutions can sometimes get out of hand and I think that unfortunate sentiment comes out of a healthy distaste for the abuses that we have seen in institutions for the past 20 years. Corporations, in politics, in churches. But the answer to it is not to jump away from our shared practices and values, but to see what does God say about how to do it rightly. And what would happen if we were to ignore it? We see an illustration of that in uh, Indonesia. We also see an illustration of that in Joshua. Joshua. So after the book of Joshua, that generation dies out and a new generation is born. And we hear about that in a book called Judges. If you ever read Judges, it's really heartwarming. <laughs> it's probably one of the most disturbing books in the Bible to read. Hard to read. It's full of sexual assaults and violence. It's full of idolatry and lawlessness. It's full of anarchy. It's full of lostness and brokenness without any seeming hope on the horizon. Of course there is. It comes later. But at the beginning of Judges, to open up uh, the book of Judges, we're told why that all occurs. And listen to this Judges chapter 2, verse 10. After that generation died, which generation? Joshua. The one that just entered into the land that got everything handed to them on a golden platter by God because of their faith and because of his grace and power and faithfulness to carry out those promises. They made it. And yet one generation later, that generation died and another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. Biblical authors are trying to tell us remembering what God has done is not a small gesture. Not only does it shape you to become the person that God wants you to be, not only does it honor God in the sight of the nations, but it is intimately tied to your future success. Without without a remembering of God's faithfulness, you will go into the future not trusting in him at all. We see this on a giant corporate level. There is a reason that we are together. There is a reason that we gather, that Israel assembled, and that the body of Christ has been assembling century after century. Now, the church is not this building that we're in. The church exists Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and any other days that I'm missing. But one of its expressions is to periodically come together. This is one of those expressions. Home groups might be another expression. Monday night might be another expression. There might be uh, more informal expressions where you get together over uh, shared meals and talk about the Lord. But so important to gather together to remember that God exists, that he is on the move, that his kingdom is expanding, that darkness is being thwarted, and that we are on a winning team. This begins to shape and form how we then go out back into the world and approach our coworkers and our family, our loved ones, our friends, our enemies, our trials, our limitations, our Jordan Rivers. It's important to remember God individually, but we also see it's important to remember God together. So that's why the apostles would later write, uh, for example, in Hebrews chapter 10, Let us, excuse me, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's almost as if we're sent out on mission to experience the indwelling power of Jesus Christ for ourselves and to share that with others, but there are also moments where we come together to be inspired by the faithfulness of God. And it comes out in so many different ways when we read the Bible and share stories of God together. It could be uh, recalling together missionaries that are being supported by people within the church uh, who are doing stuff on the other side of the world we see God's kingdom enacted and we rejoice. It's hearing testimonies, like what some of you are gonna do uh, tomorrow night, or some of you do in, in home groups do, uh, during the week. You're recalling God's faithfulness and it is spurring you on, it is reminding you. God is always faithful to his promises. It's even in small things like singing songs together. When we are together singing songs about who God is and what he has done, you know, I can do that in my car. You know, I can bump you know, worship music in my car and it has a, a, a particular effect on my spirit, which is good. But then there are times when I come together with people and we sing, name above all names, you are worthy to be praised. My heart will sing, how great is our God. And there's something special about hearing hundreds of people sing that. I know we're all singing that to the Lord, but there's an aspect of it where I feel like I'm being sung to too. I'm being told by my brothers and sisters, God is faithful. And I'm like, oh yeah. For a moment I was surrounded by all of these problems and I was drowning in the Jordan River and I thought that I was alone in all of this but then I I come together with all of these people and they're testifying of God's goodness and they're singing about God's goodness and I go back out into the world again, recalibrated to who God really is. Then verse 11 through 18, we see the transition from remembering. This is, this is an important one, too. Just look, at, look at what he says right here, uh, starting in verse 11. When all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over, armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. Uh, just a quick aside, if you're wondering why he pinpointed those three tribes Back, I think in Numbers, they were the three tribes that didn't want to go any further. They didn't want to go into the promised land. They were giving up. They were like, you know what? This ground looks pretty good. Can we just stay here? Uh, Moses got really angry, uh, and God said, you know what? If you can commit to the whole assembly, when war comes, you can camp out here. And so now what we see in verse 12, they are actually keeping that commitment. They're coming ready to take the land, verse 12. Verse 13, about 40,000 people ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On the day, uh, excuse me, on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests, bearing the ark of the testimony, to come up out of the Jordan. Remember the ark is a That picture of God's presence. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Awesome. Transition from remembering. If there's something we can pull from this, there's probably a few things, but I just want to pull one thing. The purpose of remembering the past is not to stay and live in the past. Right? God doesn't command us to remember his faithful acts so that we can be nostalgic. He tells us to remember those past acts so that we can walk boldly into the future. Notice that there are 40,000 men ready for battle. Not to go back and to reminisce on how good things were back then. The good old days. But to move into the future fully armed and ready for battle. So we do want to take short trips into the past periodically. We do want to take short trips into the past to remember what God has done, what God is showing us. But we just don't want to live in the past. We see in this that warriors who remembered God's faithfulness were then ready and inspired and motivated to march forward and take hold of the promise that God had already given, given them. In this we see that God's past record is our future assurance. We remember the things that God has done, both big and small, not to be nostalgic, not to remember the good old days, but to look forward at what God is calling us to with a vote of confidence, knowing if he did that, he can certainly do this i 'm moving forward in obedience. last section verse nineteen through twenty four just to summarize where we 've been, you know we could say from what we just read, God will periodically causes people to stop and to remember what he 's done often in in times of adversity, not to be nostalgic, but to be courageous. That he will be faithful to complete what he started. And in this last section of Joshua 4, we see the significance of remembering what God has done. Look at, look at, what, he, look at what the author tells us in verse 19. People came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. And they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. We'll talk more about Gilgal in the weeks to come. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? And you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Israel is now setting up these stones in a final pillar at Gilgal with instructions to teach other generations. This is just discipleship. Part of discipleship is to hand down that which God has done. To remind people, this is what God has done in my life, to give t- testimony. But what exactly are they testifying about? Now, we've already seen how they're speaking and they're remembering how God has been faithful in the moment, Right? We were stuck on this side of the river and now we are on the other side of the river and God moved the river so that we could do that. Amazing. And certainly for you and I, we can look back throughout the days and weeks and see instances where God has moved. But God is also linking this act of remembering to a bigger part of the story. He's pulling us out of those little moments our little bubble that we live in with all of its problems to a bigger overarching story. Look at verse 19. It says, The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal. Where have you heard that before? The tenth day of the first month. Turn to Exodus chapter 12. You'll recognize this story. Exodus chapter 12. I'll just read a few scattered verses here. But as you're flipping through it, you might recognize this as one of the most sensational and cosmic displays of God's power in the life of Israel. This is when he rescues them from slavery to Egypt. And we're right in the middle. We're actually at the tail end of the ten plagues, right? God is displaying his power uh, to Pharaoh and each time asking Pharaoh, demanding Pharaoh, let my people go. Doesn't let him go. His heart gets hardened. Uh, Romans 9 will later tell us that this was so that God could put his power on display to the nations. Uh, And so in one final sweep, a very heartbreaking one, uh, but a powerful one nonetheless, we see in chapter 12, God finally enacts a sign that will change everything. Look at verse 1. Three, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. First of the month. It shall be the first of the month of the year for you. So tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Okay? So there's that date. First month, tenth day, take a lamb. Look at verse six. I'm just skipping ahead to get kind of the, the gist of this chapter. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So it's a sacrifice. Verse 11, why are they doing this? Verse 11 through 14. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through or pass over this day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So once again, Israel is given a meal. I love that God does that sometimes. He's like, I did this thing. It's awesome. I want you to remember it. Here's a meal. Eat. We should do more of that. But there's the date, right? First month, 10th day. What is the significance? It's Passover. One of the most incredible, powerful displays of God's power, judgment, and mercy where he, judges, uh, where he judges the enemy, but he also gives mercy and a way of redemption to his people. And he does it through the blood of these lambs. That whenever the, the angel of death sees the, the blood over these doorposts, the blood of the lamb, uh, it's as though they are protected. They are protected by God and so they are spared. <clears throat> this moment in the Jordan River of setting up the stones doesn't, just to be, just doesn't seem to be an arbitrary, disconnected act of remembering. It certainly means I did this, and I want you to remember in the moment what I've done, but I also want you to remember the big picture, that this act of salvation is actually connected to a great story of salvation and redemption. And he points back to one of the biggest acts of redemption that Israel has known up, in, up until that time. In fact, in Joshua 4, verse 23, he refers to that. He says, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for, until you pass, uh, uh, for you until you passed over, just like he did for us at the Red Sea. He's connecting this to the Red Sea. When God's people would go through the Red Sea on their way from Egypt, he's connecting this memorial stone to the Passover meal. He's connecting it to a bigger and greater story. In fact, the word memorial is used most often to describe not this, but Passover and the great exodus. God is tying this event to the great story. This is a pattern and a parallel, by the way, that would lead to another great act of salvation when God would send his son as the true Passover lamb whose blood takes away the sins of the world. And people thousands of years later would look upon that lamb and their, their sins would not just be covered over, they would be far removed. And this is God in flesh, who this time doesn't just part the sea, but he stands upon it as God and master. And he commands it to calm down. And he would come in on the scene uh, hundreds of years later and he would destroy once and for all the works of the devil. Through his sinless life, through the cross, his death, also through his resurrection, he would rescue people out from darkness and form a new society of people. Out of every tribe and tongue and nation on the face of the planet, to be the example of what his kingdom is supposed to look like. Same author that I mentioned before writes this, an important moment in how remembering forms us is when we link my story, my individual story, with our story of the church universal and understand that we are a part of something far larger than ourselves. This might seem counterintuitive because when you're hurting, the first thing that you want to do is kind of retreat inside, right? And there's a healthy time and a place to, to face what's going on inside. There's also a healthy time and a place to look beyond that. Uh, I love, <laughs> I love jo- uh, how John Piper used to tell this story. He would put it this way. He'd say, you know, uh, to put it in a, another manner of thinking when you go to uh, you know, the Swiss Alps and you look at the vast mountain terrain, it's not to feel significant about yourself. Or we put it in another way. He'd say, when you, uh, when you look down at the gaping uh, expanse of the Grand Canyon, when you look in the middle of the night you know, through a telescope or in a clear night on the mountains at the stars, you don't leave that situation feeling like you're at the top of the world, right? You don't look at those things and experience those things to feel significant. You don't look at the stars and say, I am amazing! You actually feel smaller and less significant. And in a very counterintuitive way, that's actually healing. Because I don't know about you, but part of me wants to know that I'm truly not the center of the universe. I pretend like I am, but deep down, I'm, I'm glad that I'm not in charge of the world. I deeply hope that there's something or someone out there that transcends my limitations. And I look at the stars and I say, yeah, he's out there. In the same way, when we remember God's faithfulness, it should cause us to look out at God's faithfulness universally. The story of his kingdom that is being woven together, causes us to say, not just God is fixing my problem right now, but he's doing far more beyond anything that I could possibly imagine. And when I look at his expanding kingdom throughout the planet, I'm given hope even for those little things that I'm dealing with right now. Why does God cause us, or excuse me, tell us to remember what he's done? It's to recalibrate us. It's to move us forward in mission. It's also to worship the only God who can part the Red Sea and the Jordan River. Joshua tells us at the end, this is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Unreached people groups, tribes and nations, family members, co-workers, people in your sphere of influence that don't believe in God, that are skeptical of God, need to hear that he is real and that he is the God of promise and that there is no one like him. There's probably a lot of ways that we can remember God together. I just want to give you a, a couple ways of doing that right now as we, as we worship through song. One of them is more individual, you can do this by yourself. Um, and this is a practice called examine. Uh, back in the fourth century, uh, beginning of the fourth century, when Constantine came to power and Christianity all of a sudden became popular, it began to lose its vitality, right? So it became culturally acceptable and even expected. Uh, the depth of Christianity lost its fervor. And so there were pockets of these people that kind of moved out of the city and went into the hills to kind of recapture what it meant to experience the abiding presence of God in a deeper way. And these were the people that we, we would call today monastics, and there were a bunch of them. You know, there were Franciscans and Carmelites and uh, Benedictines and uh, Cistercians, and they all had their particular way of remembering that. Well, there was one guy in particular who would start one. His name was Ignatius of Loyola. I like this guy because he was a contemplative. He really wanted depth, and meditation in the presence of God, but he was also a concrete practical thinker. He was a military guy that became a monk. Awesome. And he was the type of guy that was like, I love the contemplative spirituality. I love deeper and like the inner life, but I also just want like five bullet points on what to do. Just tell me how to experience the presence of God. Three ways to experience the presence of God. I love that because I'm kind of the same exact way. Uh, And... He had this practice that's very simple that people have been doing, thousands of people for hundreds of years, even to this day, called examine. And it's a way of noticing God's presence in your life so that you can become more deeply aware of God's presence in your life. It's very powerful, but it's very simple as well. You could do this right now. Start by reviewing the day in your mind, um, if it's at night, It's morning right now, so you could review your Saturday. Start from the beginning and see all of the things that you've been through and gone through. But specifically looking for moments where God was present. You're also looking for moments where God was present and you might have ignored him. Now, the the powerful part of this practice is not looking for bells and whistles and fireworks and God parting red seas. It's looking for where he was present in the ordinary and the seemingly mundane. So an example like in my own life, I might look back on my Saturday uh, or another day and just be like, I'll be replaying the events and I'll remember a conflict. Oh yeah, I got in this argument with this person. I wanted to give them a what for and I had all the right words. I was gonna just let them have it. And I normally would have, but I didn't. And in that moment, I might have just chalked that up to how awesome that I was in the moment or nothing at all, but looking back on it, God's speaking to me and he's saying, I was restraining you. It was an act of my grace, and that act of remembering is causing me to see, wow, God was present. I sensed God's presence. This teaches me to to see how God is present in all different areas of my day, not just when I'm at church and when songs are going and when the preacher, you know, He's actually present and active in so many different ways. But it might be that in that moment, I actually said all of those bad things. Like, oh, I missed it. And you know what? I think I felt that restraining in my heart. God was trying to do something in me, and I blew it. And from there, I can learn, God, what, what were you trying to teach me? what was going on in my heart? You, you, you look at your emotions and you pay attention to what you were feeling in that moment because God speaks so powerfully through them and that's all you do. You just replay the day. You see where God might have been present and maybe where he was present and you might have missed him. You thank him for his presence. You receive forgiveness for where you were negligent. You move on to the next day a little more aware of how God is present in your life. Here's a second and final way And this is one that we can do together. It's the Lord's Supper. That Passover meal would later point to Christ's death as the true Passover lamb. And Jesus, God, as he often does, gives us a meal to remember it. It says in Matthew 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Paul would later say, every time you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. What you're doing when you're examining your day is you're seeing where God was present. He's faithful to be present. When you take of the bread and cup, you're, 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 you're seeing that he's not just present with you, He actually decisively destroyed the works of the devil and set you free. When we come together like this, we're remembering that so that we can move forward with God's faithfulness as our banner, that the world may know that there is a God and that he has come to set the lost free. Heavenly Father, I ask right now that as we uh, spend some time in your presence, singing and reflecting and praying that you would recall to our minds your faithfulness, how you have been there, and how you are there right now. I just speak specifically for men and women in this building who feel tired and worn out and and abandoned and isolated, without hope, And I pray for your spirit to overwhelm and encapsulate them right where they sit. We ask that as we begin to sing songs about who you are and what you've done, that you would stir in our hearts something bigger than ourselves to live for. That is that the God of the universe is on a mission. He's plucking people from left and right out of the domain of darkness and transferring them to his beloved kingdom. Lord, those of us who are right now in your kingdom want to experience the beauty of that kingdom to its fullest measure. So open up our eyes to see. Empower our hands to take hold of the promises you have set forward. In Jesus' name, amen.